You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Luke 23, 44-56 It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and anointments and ointments. On the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So we are this morning jumping back into our series in the Gospel of Luke. I think we're 103 sermons in now. We're getting very close to the end. But we've come to this point in the narrative of the death of Christ. Part of what makes preaching kind of systematically through uh, passages of Scripture is it puts you at odd places uh, of the text at odd times of the year. Like this is typically a Good Friday, I mean, or an Easter, sort of, or a Palm Sunday, somewhere in that area sort of text, right? Because we're talking about the death of Jesus. But here we are, the first Sunday of 2020, January 5th, and we are in a death passage. We're, uh, we're in a passage specifically regarding the events surrounding the death of Jesus, that's, that's interesting, that, we would, that that would be where we land this morning. But, you know, you think, is there any significance to that? And, well, not really. We're just kind of preaching systematically through the Bible, and this is what happens after our Advent series. And then last week, this is just kind of, this was our next text. But, I don't know, there might be some significance to it. I kind of like where we've landed. I, kind, I like the idea. I want to try to give some significance on this fact this morning that we are starting 2020, the first Sunday of the year, we are putting our priorities out. What are we going to be about in the coming year? And so I think it's fitting 
that when we think about what our direction is going to be, who we are going to be, that we would, from the start, take time to emphasize the reality of the death of Jesus. We want to be, want to build and foster a church here that lives under the authority of Scripture, listening to whatever it says, and the Scripture places a huge importance upon the death of Jesus. It is the centerpiece of Scripture. It is the centerpiece of history, the cross of Jesus Christ. This coincides with something else that I'm really excited about, and I haven't mentioned it uh, at, here at the Sunday morning service yet, but when I first got here... Um, it kind of did my walk around of the building and, and saw the places where the drywall was kind of, we wanted to get this fixed and wanted to get this issue fixed. One of the things as I walked around outside that I wanted to get fixed was there's this really nice white cross on top of the building. And it was always dark at night. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we put a light on that cross? And it, just, it would be so neat to have a light on that cross. I mean, because then you'd, you'd walk around town, drive around, and from the highway even, you'd be able to see, here's this lit up cross. And so I began to ask around. It turns out, there is a light. There was a light on that cross. It was just burnt out. So then I climb up there and we go and look. I think maybe, uh, Tony, was with me, maybe Tony was with me. We climb up there and this is this, it's, it's, the light had some age on it is all I'm going to say. And we could not find a bulb to replace it. And so it, the cross sat dark on the top of the cross for several years now. Well, this Christmas, I think I'm going to call it a Christmas gift to me. A light, Tanner got up on the roof and fixed a new light on the cross. And so we start 2020 in a text on the death of Jesus and with a brand new light shining on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get all weird, but I, I, want, I, but I do want to like embrace that reality. We have the light shining upon the cross. If you get out, it's still easy to be out after dark. You know, it's not summer, so it's not that late. Six o'clock, the lights are out. You can, you can drive around and see that this cross, which extends all the way down here into the sanctuary, that white pole coming down is the bottom of the cross. Those of you who are here when the building was built knew that. I didn't know that until I was reading the, uh, the, introdu- the page of the, uh, well, what do you call it? Whenever they formalized the building, they had the celebration. Huh? Dedication, that's a better word, formalization. The dedication of the building, that this was designed with the cross that's clear on top of the building that we have the light on now comes in and where the word is proclaimed in this church is from the foot of the cross. I like that. I really, I could get into that. That's good. And so here we are, 2020, the light is back upon the cross. The word is being proclaimed where? From the foot of the cross. And we start out the year thinking upon what? The death of Jesus Christ. Paul says in first in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim. And that's what I want to be about. Him we proclaim and determined that like he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it is appropriate, I think, with that understanding that this is the text we are in on the first Sunday in January of 2020. What do we see then in a narrative like this? And there are many details and fulfillments of prophecy. It's a, it's a fascinating text. But there, again, Luke is... You know, you would read this. Remember at the beginning, Luke says, 
I've written these things down. Many have taken it upon themselves to compile a, an account of these narratives. But I have written to you, Theophilus, he's who he's writing to. I have written to you so that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And the whole reason that he's writing this to, to Theophilus, the writing down of these, this account, this narrative of the life of Jesus, is that these clear facts, the reality of what the life of Jesus was about, would be preserved and given to Theophilus, and he'd have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. And so there is just a, a broad picture that Luke is seeking to give of here's what happened in the life of Jesus. And so there are these just sweeping ideas coming from the text. And we've gone through many of them in our, in our several sermon uh, work through the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, I, I want us to see five things, but four things to start off with of what we see in the text this morning. We see that Christ's death was first of all real, that Christ's death was dark, that Christ's death, thirdly, was determined, and fourthly, that Christ's death was mourned. First thing we see is that Christ's death was real. And I think that honestly, as simple as that is, that's the main point Luke is trying to get across in this passage. Christ's death was a real death. He was not some mystical being who pretended to go to the cross and then faded out. I mean, it was a real death. Christ was a real man. He went to a real cross. And this was not some sort of an execution. It wasn't some mystery about how Jesus died. Like they came and got him from the Garden of Gethsemane and then no one ever saw him again. It wasn't that sort of a, it wasn't that sort of a death. This was a public execution. Crowds are there, a spectacle is what Luke tells us, right? The crowd is gathered for this spectacle that it is in front of a large crowd to, to have many witnesses to this reality that Jesus really died. Now, I know this is a more primitive culture than us because, you know, they didn't have, um, they weren't taking his pulse ox. They weren't, you know, trying to get his pulse and blood pressure and all that stuff. But this is not an ignorant society. <laughs> they know when someone's dead, and, and they, they pulled Jesus down off the cross. And in many of these details, you can see that as they're wrapping him with this linen, with the spices, carrying him to the tomb, these are not uh, stupid people. They know what death looks like. And they know, and Luke is laboring the point through this passage to let us know that this man walking on the earth, who was God in his authority actually died a real death. If we are imaginary people, which I'd argue we aren't, but if we are imaginary, then an imaginary death would suffice. If this was all pretend, then a pretend death would do. But if we are real people, and I would argue that we are real people, then what was needed as a substitute is a real death. It's very important that Christ actually lived, that he actually has the, the hypostatic union, that he is truly man because mankind needed a true substitute. And so Christ incarnates, puts on flesh, what we just celebrated at Christmas, because a real mankind needed a real substitute that could only be provided by a real death. And you can see it from all of these details, the burial preparations, the mourners as they leave, the descriptions of the tomb where he was laid, all of these interesting details surrounding the death. 
Luke is just trying to emphasize that this is not a fable, but this is a real event in history. Christ really died. Um, what's the difference? You know, why does this matter? It's like the difference between reading a really good fiction novel and a really good biography. I like fiction a lot. I like even like science fiction a lot. And there's, there's lots of good... Um, when you, when you read a fiction book and you can find it stirring, you, you, you see principles of courage and bravery. You see principles of, of, of heartache, of sorrow, and, and all, of these, uh, all of these events, these human responses that the author has kind of created in their mind by putting it down on paper. And, and you can read a fiction book, and it can be very moving. Um, and you can even read uh, sometimes a, a fiction story and be brought to tears and, and actually moved just by these human ideas. They're very impactful. Even a fiction story discussing real things. But how much more than a fiction story about these real events? How much more moving is it when you find a really well-written biography about a person's life? with all the difficulties and all the, all the just complications that are in their life, and then you see a, a real act of heroism from a certain individual. And you realize that this, this heroism that we see, like I, I'm reading missionary biographies and oh, just currently rereading In the Shadow of the Almighty about the missionary Jim Elliott, um, reading that again and, and, and thinking about this wasn't just some fictionalized principles and some fictionalized living, but this was a real life. When something real, when you come across the, the, the reality of, of, a, of a real life, it has a, a heightened impact upon you. When you read a biography of heroic actions, there's an additional impact due to the fact that it's happening in real life. Christ's death was, was the biographical kind of death. It wasn't the fiction story. It wasn't the, well, isn't that interesting? A principle of self-giving, a principle of love. Isn't that neat? It's ideas. Isn't that neat? No, it's more than that. It was a real death. And therefore, really and truly meaningful. Christ's death, Luke is making the point, was a real death. Christ's death was also a dark death. Reality. Christ's death was also dark. The sun itself is hidden for three hours. And the time period is kind of confusing for us, right? Because it says, now about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour. It's from six to nine, so it was a cloudy morning. Well, no, you look at your little notes. Six is the sixth hour is from sun up, so it's about noon, to the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. So from noon till three, the sun goes out. Why is that odd? Well, that's the brightest part of the day, right? Noon to 3, ask the mailman when the hottest time is, and it's about 2.30 to 3.30. The sun is the brightest in the sky. There, the sun goes out. Now, this wasn't a solar eclipse. Some people get all caught up with trying to figure out, well, what is the phenomenology? How does that actually work astronomically? How could the sun have been darkened for three hours on one Friday and, the, you know, whatever? And we start, it couldn't have been, a, it wasn't a solar eclipse. 
Passover, which coincides with this, is, during, is, is on a lunar schedule. So the moon would have been full at this time. And so if you're into your astronomy, little nerdy stuff, then you know that if there's a full moon, there's no way it could be a solar eclipse because it's opposite side. Yeah, so it wasn't, anyway, it wasn't a solar eclipse. You're welcome for that. I'll stop. Okay. Everyone's eyes are glazing over. What are you talking about? But you, they're losing the point. Oftentimes, people do this with the, with the miraculous things that happen in the Bible. Like, they try to figure out, well, the burning bush could have been that it was such a dry climate that maybe a lightning struck it just the right, or, or a gas, a fissure opened up maybe in the desert, which ignited this bush, and then God, they get all caught up with some sort of fantasizing or, or just trying to figure out, making logical this thing that's happened, but missing the whole point. How did God split the Red Sea? Trying to figure out all of these different things. Um, how, how did the star, here's a one that we just recently have gone through, how does a star lead them to this specific stable? What was that star? What was it? And people try to spend all this time trying to figure out, they're missing the whole point. The point is not in the event itself. It's what it's, what it's symbolizing, what it's talking about. The sun goes dark because of the dark event that's going on. The Son of God is being murdered. And what, what is being communicated in that darkness is the judgment that is being laid out. The judgment. You can go to texts like Isaiah chapter 13 and verses 9 through 11. Darkness is this eschatological, this end of time image. That justice, judgment is coming. Darkness is falling. And you look at Amos chapter 8 verse 9. It actually says... Very interestingly, interestingly, in Amos 8, verse 9, because it actually gives a time. 8, 9 says, And on that day, declares the Lord God. Now, this is a passage of judgment coming from the prophet Amos. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And it's all this justice, this judgment that's coming to God's rebellious people. He says, I'm going to blot the sun out at noon. And, this, and it's going to be dark at noon, at broad daylight. It's going to be darkened. It's this imagery of, just, of judgment that is coming. And what you see at, at, at the cross is this, this Jewish Messiah is being rejected by his people. Judgment. Judgment is being poured out. The cross is an indictment against the nation of Israel. They've rejected their Messiah, and it is a dark day. And what also is going on there is Christ, as the substitute for sin, is taking the judgment against his people upon himself. So just the, the, all of the judgment that's going on, the sky is darkened. There's the tearing of this curtain in the temple, right? And that has many uh, ramifications, many Im implications from that. But one of them is this idea of, of, a, of, a, of this wrathful rip. There's this ripping going on. Of, of, it's not necessarily a symbol of, of a temper tantrum, but of anger at judgment. And so the, the temple curtain is ripped. God tears his cloak, in a sense, from the Holy of Holies. There is this rip. So Christ's death, Christ's death was real. It was dark. It was also determined. You look at Christ, and he has these seven words from the cross, is how it's typically uh, phrased. A.W. Pink has a great book called Seven Sayings from the Cross. I'd recommend it to you. But he says here in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All along the way here, Jesus has had complete control of who he is and of what's going on. 
speaking, communicating. And here he is hanging on the cross saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who has the ability to be going through all, I mean, without having divine authority to go through all that he's gone through and still be able to say, I'm in charge of this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says in John 10, 18, that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his accord. And here we see Jesus yielding up his life. His death was determined. It wasn't some accidental happening. This is what was determined from eternity past. His death was real. It was dark. It was determined. And it was mourned. These people walk away. And they see what a terrible thing has happened. An innocent man, the centurion says. Certainly this man was innocent. The enemy who was guarding him all day, overseeing his execution, when it gets done, exclaims this something, something terrible has happened here. An innocent man has been killed. We see again this theme we've covered earlier about the innocence of Jesus. Think of the incredible turn that God is working here. It was right to mourn the death of Jesus, the only truly innocent man that ever lived, the only truly innocent person that ever lived. And now I know we all, no, you're not. Jesus was truly innocent. The only person ever truly and totally 100% innocent is murdered. This is the greatest evil ever done. No innocent, no totally innocent person has ever been killed. Christ is the only one, perfect, totally innocent, who is murdered. His life is taken from This is the great moral wrong. And they mourn over this wrong. Yet we know this is the work through which guilty man who cannot save himself will be redeemed. They mourn over it because it's a great injustice. But at the same time, it is the only way that sinful man will be redeemed. Christ's death was real. It was dark. It was determined. And it was mourned. But I want us to see one more thing that Christ's death was. If you've got your Bible out, you can look down verse 56. Then they returned, prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And then what follows that word commandment? If you got your Bible, what follows that? Chapter 24. Christ's death was dark, real, dark, determined, and mourned. And Christ's death was also not the end. It's not the end of the story. That's the, cry, the, the scripture goes on. We are not to the end of the book of Luke yet. Christ's death was also, it was not the end of the story. Now, there, we've been building all along in this gospel to this point. And so I think that as you're reading it and you've got the scrolls out, maybe you're in, you're in church back in the ancient days and they're reading this text, they get to this part of the story and, and realize, well, so there's, there's more to come. This isn't, this is, this is as, as, as uh, dark and determined and real and, and mourned as this event was, there's something more yet to come. Even though this is truly an awful tragedy, this is the means through which God is going to glorify himself by bringing about the salvation of his people. We end this section of the text with Jesus' followers obeying the Sabbath. They are obedient. They, they put these spices on them and, and, and wrap them in a linen and take them to a new tomb. You know why that's important? Um, 
You think about the way they used to bury people in those days. They had these tombs, either natural caves or this was a cut cave. It was, it was, it was made. And they had these shelves. And you would take the body and wrap it in spices and the linens and lay it on the shelf. Because, and it would, it would de decompose there for months. And then at, during that time, the reason why he wrapped it in spices is because other people would die. And they'd use the same tomb. And so they'd bring them in and lay them beside you on the table and then kind of rotate you out. Once the body got well decomposed, they would take those bones, put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and then bury the bone box further back in the cave. It's kind of done that way in New Orleans. When we visited New Orleans, they used to, they, they would bury, they have family graves. And when you get there, you just take the next most recent person and put them on top. And bury them. And then when the next person died, you'd kind of dig up and kind of stir all that up and put the next person on top and just kind of keep burying them down. Well, that's the way this cave was. But if Jesus goes into a, into a tomb that's occupied by several corpses, it's easy to lose track of which one he is. They're all wrapped up in, in linens. Jesus is, no one else is in his tomb. They're going to return to his tomb, and it's not going to be able to say, well, now which one was Jesus? Because it's empty, because there was only one person in the tomb. Jesus was put into this new tomb. So we end this section, they're, they're waiting to go back, to go back to the tomb. They're on the Sabbath, they're observing the Sabbath, waiting to go. But their defeat, their felt defeat, is actually supreme triumph. It's this fascinating moment in the scripture where this incredible defeat they feel is actually the most amazing moment in the text. Their felt defeat is their supreme triumph. The darkness that clouded that day is going to turn into the brightness that's going to bring them life. When that curtain tore, the dividing wall between God's holy place in the temple and, and the commoners and the, and the people of God. There was a wall, there was this curtain that was divided God's presence from the people. And what we see at the cross is God rips that dividing wall. That curtain is tore. And we'll see the fruition, that the seed is planted, which will come to fruit at Pentecost. When God actually comes to be with his people, the Holy Spirit is poured out to be with his people. The hostility, the separation that existed between God and all creation is torn down at the cross. In a very real way, the death of Jesus Christ is not the end. It's really the beginning. It feels like this horrible end. And it, it's this dark, determined, mourned, real moment that feels like the end. But it is just the beginning. This is the work of God bringing salvation, reconciliation to sinners. This is why we must live with this cross as the center of who we are. As the center of who we are. Let me encourage you this morning that the greatest way to ensure that our church is cross-centered is that every one of us individually seeks to make this real, this determined, this dark, this mourned, but this not the end cross, the centerpiece of who we are. As the catechism says, because we belong not to ourselves, but belong body and soul to our faithful God and Savior. Is the joy of this work of your Savior your highest joy? Is this hope that Christ brings, is it your highest hope? It can be. And here's the good news. that We start out with the realness of this event, the realness of the death of Christ, 
as real as that death was, as real as that death is in history past, that is the same amount of realness that the joy and the hope that the cross brings. It was a real death, which means it was a real substitute, which means it provides real salvation for sinners, which it means every one of us in this room this morning can have real hope, real joy, real peace, not fabricated by this world, but brought about and brought to us through the real sacrifice, death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would be given eyes to see this, the joy, the hope, the peace that comes from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your son's sacrifice. As we come to communion this morning, we rejoice that we have a God who did not wait because you would have waited forever for us to earn your favor, but you sent your son. You went on the mission to redeem us when we had no redemption to purchase on our own. Father, give us eyes to see this, the realness of this, the realness of the death of Christ, the realness of his resurrection, and therefore the realness of the hope that comes from life in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.